Welcome to the Lion Share Podcast for marketing leaders by marketing leaders. Brought to you by Fidelitas Development. All right, and welcome to episode 11 of the Lion Share Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Sickmeyer, along with my co host, Kyle. You may want my hair, but you can't afford my haircut, Weber. Kyle, so great to have you joining us from our Nashville office today. Thanks for jumping in on another great episode of the Lion Share Marketing Podcast. Yeah, Tyler, it's great to be here. And we do, we have a great episode today with Nasser Pasha and Matt Staub from Pasha Law. And uh, they're sharing a lot of great information, legal information for marketers today. But uh, before we jump into that, Tyler, what's in the news? News team, assemble! All right. So Kyle, recently Google hosted their Marketing Next conference and the company rolled out a array of new announcements regarding marketing. And one of the biggest is actually regarding a new tool that Google has coming out. It's in beta right now called Google Attribution. Or if you've got 150000 or so in spare change, Google Attribution 360 for oh. those with larger budgets out there. Yeah, that's right, Tyler. In fact, the biggest question I think marketers have is, is my marketing working? That's what brands want to know. That's what brands want to see reported to them. But there is an issue because a lot of what is being reported is last click attribution, which doesn't give you a full picture of the entire customer journey. So let's first of all, let's define attribution here. Attribution is the identification of a set of user actions, events, or touch points that contribute in some manner to a desired outcome, and then the assignment of a value to each of these events. This is a Wikipedia definition. It's so nice. Um, so Google says that they're going to solve this problem this year so that marketers can actually see what's working through the customer journey. So Google attribution, what it's doing is it's going to unify AdWords, analytics, and double click. So you get a single view of the path to purchase. Tyler, what does this actually mean for marketers? Yeah, Kyle, this is going to be a great tool. There are other attribution tools out there for marketers, but at the same time, most of those are geared towards larger enterprise e-commerce brands. So having a free tool for small and medium-sized businesses is going to be a great opportunity for these brands and their agencies to get a better handle on what part of their marketing is working. And so often brands have relied on what's called last click attribution. So, you know, wherever the last click comes from is what gets credit for the sale because that's what you can track, right? So it doesn't matter how many TV commercials a person saw. If they clicked on the Facebook ad and then made the purchase, the Facebook ad gets the credit. Right. Uh, and I don't know if we'll ever fully be able to get rid of that or to solve that, but it, this seems like a very welcome step in the right direction. And it seems like an opportunity for brands to really get a better grasp of what part of their marketing is working, especially when they use attribution from Google in tandem with their Google Analytics and uh, if they're using the DoubleClick network as well, that's another great opportunity for them. So again, just a nice opportunity to have a better understanding of the data and what part of the marketing is working for these brands. So, Yeah, and Bill Key, one of the keynote speakers for the conference, he said search advertisers who switch to data-driven attribution get more conversions without paying more per conversion, which I think is really cool. And you get to see, like you were saying, you get to see you know, where the whole journey, like let's just talk, Stanley Cup playoffs for a second, right? You know, <laughs> we're in the playoffs now. You know, it's like if one person is always score scoring the goal, but you don't give any kind of credit to any of the assists, you know, you don't have an accurate picture of what's happening. 
And so this gives you an accurate picture. So you may not think your display ads are working, but when in fact they could be working really well, they just may be the thing that's assisting the purchase. So I think it's great. I think having more data is always going to be helpful. Uh, so you can just see the whole journey. Absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. And again, I don't think this is the last step in the process to fully understanding what piece of the marketing is working, but I think it's a great step. And I think it's one that's going to be mandatory for agencies to take, especially. So if there are any marketing leaders on the brand side listening out there and your agencies aren't moving in this direction, I would ask them why, because you can never have too much data. The key is just making sure that it's understandable and actionable uh, so that you actually can make intelligent decisions off of that data. Absolutely. And I'm just going to leave this section with one little statistic that I pulled out of this conference that I thought was really awesome. And that is that 91% of smartphone owners purchased or plan to purchase something after seeing a relevant ad. Keyword, relevant. Yeah, that's a great point, Kyle. The other key takeaway I took from that conference was that uh, YouTube is actually going to add local extensions. So for our brick and mortar marketers out there, great opportunity to further tie your digital ads back to local sales. How often can you get that phone to ring and drive that foot traffic into stores? So great opportunity hint, hit for marketers to take your TV commercials and make sure that you put them online as well. And Kyle, without further ado, we've got a great interview, a lot of great insight from Nasser and Matt today. So let's get to our interview with the guys from Pasha Law. All right, great. And with us today on the Lionshare Marketing Podcast, two legal experts that I turn to quite frequently for advice, Nasser Pasha and Matt Staub of Pasha Law. Pasha Law is headquartered in uh, Houston and San Diego. Uh, they also practice law in Illinois, New York. And am I leaving any other states out? I know you've got the four major ones. No, coast, coast to coast. We stop there, I think. Uh, that's, yeah. that's, <laughs> all the ones that matter anyways. Oh. <laughs> Oh, I didn't say that. Didn't, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, no Tennessee digs. We love Nashville, Kyle. Thank so, you. <laughs> so Nasser and Matt specialize in corporate law. They work with a variety of businesses and both companies that run into marketing challenges as well as agencies like Fidelitas. So it's great to have them on and uh, share some of their legal expertise for, for marketing leaders out there that might find themselves navigating murky waters on occasion when it comes to the legalese around our marketing campaign. So, Nasser, Matt, great to have you guys on today. Yeah, thank you for having us. I appreciate yeah. it. Thanks. All right, great. So, we'll dive right in. So, obviously, you, you guys have been around for a minute. So, what are the most common legal issues that you see arise from the marketing side of things? Yeah, there are quite a few. Every business pretty much has to market. And in doing so, they run into pretty much the same legal issues. And a lot of them include everything from how you advertise, some of the restrictions that the FTC places on advertising for on the web or in print. And then, of course, you have social media issues when it comes to how you market there, whether it's making sure your website has images that you actually own, for example, is a, is a common problem. What else, Matt? What do you think? Yeah, to me, it's, it kind of works in two different phases. And, and so the marketing side of things, I think it's a lot on the front end, which is you have to do a lot of the due diligence up front. You have to get all the everything in place leading up to whatever you want to do. And then the second phase is the execution, which 
there's still going to be some legal issues with that, but it's more of getting everything prepared, getting all the legal legalese in place, and then you can do the actual marketing aspect of it. Great. So let's back up for a second about the FCC specifically. Obviously, that's on every marketing leader's radar to some extent. And if not, they certainly should be. It's pretty easy to get yourself in trouble there. So what tips do you have when it comes to navigating FCC regulations, be it with you know traditional media like TV commercials or even uh, new media options? So to specify, most of the time, most companies run into the FTC when it comes to their marketing. Of course, if you're doing any kind of broadcasting or radio, the FCC does come into play. But for the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, they govern things like, for example, if you're an influencer on social media or if you have a blog and you have some kind of sponsored post, whether it's a blog promoting a particular product or a post in that you were paid to do, the disclosures surrounding that are, are actually governed by the FTC. And in fact, the FTC just sent out I don't know how many it was, Matt, it was like about 100 or so different letters to yeah. celebrities and influencers around the nation, basically telling them, hey, if you have a sponsored post, you have to have a clear and conspicuous notice that this is a sponsored post. And, and just think about the, the ramifications of that. Uh, clear and conspicuous is a pretty high standard. And when you have a Twitter <laughs> or a tweet, I should say, or a post on Instagram, there's not a lot of space on that to actually give that kind of disclosure, but that's what the FTC is looking for. Right. I, I mean, obviously, it's a little bit more restrictive in Twitter. You have the characters you have to work with. But yeah, it was curious to me because I've seen all these different companies and different individuals obviously place these ads on social media. And I was wondering if they were just choosing not to comply with with that FTC rules or if they were just oblivious to it. And I think we kind of got our answer with that. But like Nasser was saying, the, the 90 or so letters that were blasted out, just making people, I guess, aware of the rules they have to follow. And it's very specific in, in terms of showing that it's an ad and, and how you have to go about it. And you, again, it's clear and conspicuous. It's a pretty high standard. And it's not like you can just write, uh, they give the example of hashtag SP, you know, sponsored ad. That, that's not going to be good enough. I mean, you have to make it very clear that what's going up there is an ad. Now, how much of that burden do the brands share? That's a good question. They do share some burden. I think mm -hmm. if it's not from a legal perspective, at the least it's from a, again, for lack of better words, a branding issue in the sense that do you want your celebrity or influencer that you hire to get a sponsored post out there, get in trouble with the FTC on some small issue where your company is going to be associated with it? Right. And so mm -hmm. making sure that they're doing it correctly is probably in their best interest anyway. Yeah. And, and I think there's two things with this. It's, we don't know who the letters were necessarily sent out to or everyone. They said both influencers and marketers. So that's kind of, I got three. The coin that, yeah, we got three. Okay. Well, we know, we know and some at least. Were those three from brands you represent or from your own social influencer account, Nasser? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's, like I said, it was, they obviously considered me an influencer and, but three times over. <laughs> so and for, for marketing leaders out there, if you're looking to hire someone with tens of influential followers, and I said that right, tens of influential followers in the Houston market, Nasser's your guy. Well, so we always, Nasser, I always kind of joke because we always, it feels like we always end up kind of ending at the same path here with a lot of these legal issues. But to answer your question, Tyler, I mean, it's, it's going to kind of come also come down to what's in the agreement between 
you know, the brand and, and the influencer. I mean, if they're going to have that sort of setup and one thing that's going to be in there is a indemnification clause. If there's any sort of issue that pops up, you know, at this point, I don't know how hard the FTC is cracking down. I mean, I would clearly follow their guidance, but at this stage, I don't know if we've necessarily seen any brand or any individual have to kind of defend these sort of non-compliance that they have right now, but there's clearly some sort of issue behind. I mean, there's going to be, the brand is going to have some responsibility. So that's a great point, Matt. And uh, following up on that regarding social influencers, how does a brand go about protecting themselves? So let's say, for example, they've vetted an account because we're going to assume that marketing leaders, whether it's on the agency side or on the brand side, have vetted the social influencers that they're hiring. That's kind of influencer marketing 101. But then let's say someone flies off the handle and they have an insensitive or racist drunk tweet. I mean, heck, even yesterday uh, in, the, in light of the terrorist attacks in the UK, a reporter made an off-color joke that we, <laughs> we were quick to highlight on Twitter yeah. before he deleted it. <laughs> And, and it's like, and, and, and so even the media can show poor judgment from time to time regarding the use of their personal social channels. Given that that's the case, how do brands and agencies go about protecting themselves? So say you hire a social influencer to do a promoted post about your clothing line, and then three hours later, a couple of margaritas down and they're, they're posting some pretty insensitive stuff. What do you do about that? So there's a legal side of things and there's a non-legal side of things. You know, again, for the, for the legal aspect, you can have some precautions built into the agreement between you and the influencer. But I, I think the heavier hitting on this is just picking, vetting the individuals, picking the right person or picking the right influencer and, and then making sure that they fall through what they're supposed to do. I mean, most likely they have, it's not just them. They have other people that they work with their team. So it's really doing that due diligence on the front end again just to make sure that it's the right fit and they're not going to do something kind of crazy like you just said it's uh i think the right influencers have a full team of people in place to to help prevent that a lot of times yeah that's true that uh, because even if you have all the legal protections once they make that remark the damage is kind of already done but i mean there are legal protections you have and you know obviously to speak specifically about it a common clause is something called a morality clause or, you know, in the industry, they may call it a bad boy or bad girl clause. And it's used, and it's actually not new. I mean, obviously, they've used it before. They've, there's been sponsors for celebrities for ages. And so that's pretty much the, the type of clause that you want in there where it's a little bit more subjective that if they have certain bad acts and how that bad act is defined, is you can actually trigger some events. Perhaps maybe if it's a sponsorship, like if Lance Armstrong, for example, is sponsored by the United States Postal Service, they may have a moralities clause where they can just terminate the contract. There could be an additional clause, for example, where you'd actually have liquidated damages. So, for example, if one of the influencers all of a sudden has a racist comment that somehow damages your brand, then you can actually put in some provision there saying that this celebrity or this influencer is actually going to pay you X dollars because it's so difficult to actually define or ascertain what exactly the amount of damages that that action has caused, that you're just, we're just going to have you pay us X amount of money. And that'll also be utilized as a prevention from actually violating that clause as well. Yeah, and probably a red flag for marketing leaders out there if when you're negotiating the deal, if there's strong pushback on a, on a hefty penalty for that sort of thing, they might be more prone <laughs> to it than you would like. That's a great point. Yeah. Okay, guys. So with Facebook ads, with 
you know, Google AdWords and all of these platforms, advertising platforms requiring privacy policies. Can we dive into that for a second? First of all, what is the difference between a privacy policy and terms of service for your website? What's the difference there? Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think it is something that people get confused with. Privacy policy, most, I mean, there's going to be a lot of things in both, but mostly is going to deal with the the information you're going to be, the website's going to be privy to or, or how they collect the data, you know, that you submit to the site and what they do with it, more or less. I mean, basically, it's it's in the actual name itself. It's the privacy policy, you know, how they handle your data, what they do with it, what they're allowed to do with it, whether they're allowed to sell it, what have you. Terms and conditions are is kind of the general, it, it can take a couple different forms, but it's going to be more so the, the actual term, the kind of the contract for the website itself. So the rules you have to follow or, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things in there. And like I said, it, it can be, it can take a couple different forms, but it's, it's really the kind of governing, the underlying legal behind your use of the website itself. Also, the privacy policy is, has a lot more requirements compared to a term of condition. And what I mean by that, there, there are actual laws, federal statutes and, and state statutes in some states that actually require some level of privacy policy, depending upon what kind of information you're collecting. Like if you're collecting any information from people under the age of 18, that those are, you know, highly regulated. Whereas in terms of conditions, I'm definitely not saying you can get away without having it, but compared to a privacy policy, as far as the actual requirements by under law, privacy policies are a little more strict. But at the same time, privacy policies tend to be a lot easier to implement in terms of conditions, especially if you have an substantial uh, website that's just that's it's more than just informational. If you actually have some kind of app or integration with users, then uh, terms of conditions can get a little complicated. Yeah, and the the, the, the the weird thing is that even though that's the case, I mean, oftentimes the privacy policy seems to be a lot shorter in length than the actual terms and conditions. So it's kind of interesting how those two play against each other. What are the dangers for a brand not having a privacy policy on their website? So like, for example, well, in California, it's a requirement. So right. that would be a, a problem. But it's... Not having it, there could be some issues depending upon what exactly the, how you're using the data. But privacy policies, again, they're so easy. Literally, you can have a privacy policy that pretty much allows you to do anything that you, you want with the data, which is fine, but then you just have to disclose that you're doing that. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's really such a low bar to go over. It's like not even worth kind of going over what's the ramifications of not doing it. It's like, you know, it's just so easy, just do it, you know? Well, and that's just exactly right. That's that's the big risk is if you are doing something with the data, you have to disclose that. But we say that and tons of companies still <laughs> fall issue to that. I mean, it's if you're going to do something with it, if you're going to sell it, you have to disclose that. It's, it's really simple, but you see companies screw this up all the time. All right, and guys, uh, shifting to another uh, topic that we've even encountered with some of our clients in the past uh, is copyright infringement. We get asked about it all the time uh, when it comes to why well, can't <laughs> get it. It's so funny. Even 
even experienced uh, CMOs have asked me, why can't we just grab a photo off of Google Images and use it for yeah. a, a campaign? Because and we feel bad, but sometimes like they'll find one that they like better if there's no budget to go out and uh, shoot their own product photography or whatever for the campaign. They'll find something on Google for inspiration, and a lot of times that's what they'll want to use. But obviously, there's a lot of risk that comes for that. So before we pick on Getty Images heavily, which we will. Uh, talk about copyright infringement at large and uh, what marketers can do to protect themselves there. Well, I think the easiest thing is exactly what you just said. You, if you want to post something, you can't just type in something into Google and take the photo and use it. I mean, if, unless you have, unless you pay for the photo or it's a free use, I mean, that's going to be copyright infringement. I think that's, I, I say that and again, this, you see companies screw this up all the time, and some of which that, I mean, I've, I've even seen law firms screw this up in the past. So it's not like it's something that, you know, people, maybe they're just not aware of it. I, I really have no idea, but that's, that's going to be one of the bigger issues you're going to run into. And I think a lot of people think that they're going to get away with it. And I think yeah. maybe early internet days, that may have been possible. But now the, when someone, a photographer or a graphic designer, publishes their photo on some of these sites that resell them or may, may just be a one-off one sell or for exclusive use. In any case, when that happens, these platforms like, like Getty Images and, and others, they have sophisticated software to search the web and determine where their images are. And as soon as they find it, even frankly, even Google Images uh, has its own search tool that you can upload your image and search the web for images that look similar and accordingly all a lawyer has to do it frankly not even a lawyer has to do it but they can just stamp out these DMCA requests which are basically uh, requests to of uh, the publisher to take the copyright or uh, the infringing image down and if that process is not followed then there's some fines that could follow as well and I should I should say that we Nasser and I do have the Nasser is a very good photographer. We have set up a separate business where he takes very you know exquisite photos and then we post them all over the place, just waiting for somebody to use them. And then we turn around and slap them with a lawsuit. So we should disclose that. I don't know if there's any sort of conflict. But <laughs> yeah. Bad jokes, but that's not that's not too far from what some people do. I mean, it, there is a business in itself in extorting companies and individuals that so-called quote-unquote steal images and and matt my headphones cut out did you say that nasser takes exquisite <laughs> photos or explicit photos <laughs> uh well, well we'll leave that up to the for the listeners to decide once they look at the site so <laughs> just google them and see what comes up just don't use it without yeah. his permission that's funny yeah, so what are exactly. some best practices for using stock photography should brands ever use royalty-free images? Is that okay? Or should they have some sort of transaction so that there's proof that they have the right to use a specific image? That's a good question because oftentimes these businesses are not are hiring marketers to do it for them. And typically, I think most businesses don't want to hassle with that. They want to make sure that they have a trusted company that is familiar with these issues that, you know, if they hire a marketing company to do a website that they don't want to get a, you know, a DMCA request a year later and the marketing company has gone on and doing bigger and better things. And so I think that should be the focus. 
if they're ultra conservative and making sure that they're protected, then yeah, maybe they buy it themselves. Uh, as far as whether it's royalty free or otherwise, um, I think it depends upon where they get the royalty free images. I think there are some sites that are reliable in making sure that the rights of the images are in fact royalty free. However, uh, I've also seen sites where that may not be the case and maybe by now they've been filtered out in the sense that those sites have been shut down. But uh, it just depends upon how involved the company wants to do it. I personally would just find someone that you trust that knows the business and does fool around with uh, you know, cutting corners. Yeah, it's, it's exactly what I was going to say. Just consider the source if you're going to go the avenue of royalty-free. Great advice, you guys. And again, we want to be respectful of your time, but thank you so much for taking some time to hang out with us today. Uh, two questions and we'll get you on your way. One, for those wondering, is it sound for our listeners to take what you say as advice and constitute this as an attorney-client relationship? <laughs> <laughs> that's, an, that's an affirmative no. <laughs> so, so, there, so there you have it, folks. Uh, don't take this as legal advice without going and consulting your own attorney. Here's our disclaimer for the episode. And guys, one last question and we'll get you on your way, which is if you could give one takeaway for our audience to leave with and make sure that remember, what would that be for our marketing leaders listening today? Well, I can, I can make it very easy or I could be a little more expensive. So the easy answer is just hire an attorney, but that's too obvious. Uh, so it's, it kind of goes in line with what I've said a couple of times in this episode. It's just, you have to think before you execute any plan. So whatever, you know, this goes in all, not just marketing, but in all phases, but I'll, I'll make it specific to marketing. Come up with your plan, work with your marketing team and do all the legal due diligence on the front end. So then it's all set in place for when you execute it, because there are going to be things that pop up after the fact, but if you have all your ducks in a row before you hit the send button or whatever you do, it's going to be a lot a lot easier for you to then navigate long-term. Great. Uh, I was listening so intently, I almost forgot to think of my own. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I do think that's great advice. And I think the only, only thing that I would say is that managing expectations is an important point when dealing with any other parties besides yourself. And really, that's when disputes occur, when expectations are not met. And when Matt said hire an attorney, obviously, that was you know, it's a very simple answer and he was a little bit joking, but if you think about it, an attorney, the value of an attorney is not that they know the law, it's that they know what issues come up under the law and what, you know, what you don't know, you don't know. And that's really the problem when, you, when it comes to posting an image on your website, unless you're familiar with copyright issues that could be get, get you in trouble, you're not going to know. Excellent. So guys, thank you so much for joining us on the Lionshare Marketing Podcast. If uh, people want to get in touch with you, be it for legal advice or for Nasser's exquisite or explicit photos, how do they go about getting in touch with you? I'll take the first part first and then I'll leave the second part alone. Uh, yeah, com is our website and uh, you can find us in social media and in person if you find us in Houston and San Diego. Yeah, so it's like, we don't have, there's no website. You just got to find us kind of a black market of sorts. So <laughs> people, know, people know how to get hold of us. Yeah. Either you know it or you don't. It's one of those things. Yeah. And yeah. Do you guys have a podcast? Because you seem pretty experienced at this. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Uh, Legally Sound Smart Business. Matt and I are co-hosts. 
And mm-hmm. you can find all our episodes on LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com, take down uh, legal issues in business and uh, talk about business legal issues in the news. Okay, great. And we'll throw in the links to all that in the show notes as well. And uh, best of luck to our listeners out there Googling for Nasser's exquisite or perhaps explicit photos. Thanks. And until next time, it's been great having you guys on. Thanks for having us. our interview with Nasser and Matt from Pasha Law. We'd just like to thank them and we'd like to thank you too, our audience. And if you would like to leave us a review on iTunes or subscribe, we would like that as well. Just uh, go to lionssharepodcast.com slash 11. You'll get the show notes there and you'll also find a link to go on over to iTunes. But once again, thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more episodes and we will see you then. You've been listening to the Lion's Share Podcast, brought to you by Fidelitas Development, your marketing partner for better brand loyalty.